welcome back to Why Did Peter Sink? This is Unmodernate, part two. We're going to talk about deprogramming from the 1980s and the 1990s. The born this way argument we were talking about last time doesn't help you resolve anything, but it just affirms your problem, your struggle. If your nature is to drink or look at dirty websites, then that makes you helpless in combating it. If there's no stopping or altering a behavior because you were born a certain way, then you either accept the problem as final or pursue a science-based solution like pharmaceuticals or a technique to deal with the issue. Of course, what you will not try if you're in the materialist worldview, the science only, no spiritual side whatsoever, you won't try prayer or even ask for divine assistance because why? Well, it's ridiculous to you. Prayer appeals to a magical nonsense that you don't believe in. And to engage in such an act would be admitting that a spiritual realm might just exist, which is, of course, for gullible simpletons. I know this feeling all too well. The denial of the spirit or soul actually blocks you from accessing a treasure of knowledge that the mind and heart are capable of reaching, but not if you don't believe it, even just crack the door to it a little bit. Now, if we become to believe in the soul or in something beyond ourselves, we open up a new possibility and we can access something that hardly makes sense to us at all. In that worldview, you can have both free will and reason, rational thought, and faith in the mystery, because in that worldview, you're allowed the full range of your mind, body, and soul. It's like a buy one, get two free. It's a, it's a BOGO offer, but you get two things for free. If you allow belief in the soul or God, you automatically receive the other side of yourself, the spiritual side. If you allow an eternal soul, it can commune with a God who knows all outcomes. But the key twist here is that while God knows all the outcomes, we do not. We still have to make decisions here. That's the thing about free will. Even if God knows everything, I don't. I still have to walk this path on this world and make decisions to go up or down, left or right. This is an incredibly weird thing about humans. To believe or not to believe makes a world of difference in how you live. And this is why the battleground for indoctrination spends so much time on the spiritual space, denying it or confirming it and confirming it in many different ways, many odd ways it manifests. The whole reason the various religions and the varieties of religious experience exist is because we can access a kind of knowledge that science cannot explain and never will explain because that's not its job. Spirits cannot be put into beakers or centrifuges or equations. So scientific papers about spirits cannot be submitted to journals for peer review without the submitting author sounding like a lunatic to other scientists. Any undergraduate student knows that science cannot co-mingle with any kind of mysticisms. Uh, you don't start a science class by calling to mind the Holy Spirit. It just doesn't work that way. But mysticism, on the other hand, can commingle with science. Let me explain myself. You can study the brain all you want and still be a mystic. You can still study the brain, biology, chemistry as deep as you want and still have a prayer life because science will help explain the physical processes and properties of what happens in the neurons during thought, but will never explain where thoughts come from or what truly happens during prayer. 
So no matter how many CAT scans are done or electrodes placed on the forehead, the spirit world is impenetrable by nature because it is not part of nature as we know it. I remember reading studies of people who would weigh bodies before and after death, and they decided that 21 grams was the weight of the soul, which is probably one of the strangest ideas I've ever heard in my life. But that is people trying to capture uh, the spirit world into the material. And you can't do that. Um, you can try, and you can write papers and maybe um, have some good stories about it, but it's all folly. It doesn't make sense. Thus, whether thoughts are generated or received is answered by which side of this fence you sit on. If spirits do not exist, then you internally create your thoughts. If spirits do exist, then your thoughts can be created externally. For the most part, the idea of thoughts being created in you can be proven, while the idea of yourself creating thoughts cannot be proven. Suggestion is a simple way to illustrate this. We all know the power of suggestion. Advertising lives on it. We ingest this stuff all the time through our eyes um, and ears. The power of suggestion is well known also by parents guiding children or teachers guiding students, and especially by salespeople working on leads. One example of this is a salesperson planting a high price in your mind and then offering a discount shortly thereafter. Planting the high price first in your mind makes the second price after the discount it makes you believe you're getting a good deal, even though the salesperson was targeting the discount price the whole time, maybe just hoping you'd bite on the overpriced charge, but really knowing the discounted price was the price he would was willing to accept, or probably even lower, really. But another example uh, of this is the loss leader in grocery stores, where we're all familiar with this, where a free item, let's say a box of delicious Cinnamon Toast Crunch cereal, is offered and you get to spend much more on a whole shopping cart full of other items, but you feel like, I got my Cinnamon Toast Crunch, the precious cereal dusted with amazing cinnamon and sugar. So in both cases, the idea of saving money is planted in your brain, whether it's by a discount or a loss, loss leader, and it brings about the action of commerce. It animates you to do something. It makes you go to the store. It makes you fill your cart. Uh, you chose, choose one store over another based on some sort of hook, the bait. You, you took the bait. Uh, whether this planting of thoughts is done by a salesperson or by an advertisement, it doesn't really matter because you receive those thoughts from external sources via the portal of your eyes or ears, and the decision is made in your head and your heart on whether to buy or ignore the thought. So you let it in or you reject it. The same power of suggestion happens continually in our day, in every waking hour, as you cannot drive down the highway in any city without a bombardment of messaging and offerings from road signs, from billboards, from businesses, from your radio, from bumper stickers on the car ahead of you, and even from other drivers with whatever they've stuck on their car, or maybe they even give you a, a middle finger out the window as a suggestion. Uh, driving from home to work will result in hundreds of planted thoughts which you either choose to allow or you reject them. This is so common that we do it unconsciously. We sort these things in our head. We sort them, cast them out, we harvest them, we reject most of them. But we do not conjure the idea of a billboard in our head. We receive an image through sight, and that image enters our mind. And then we have to determine what to do with the image and quickly decide, what does a personal injury attorney have to do with me? And then it might be like, do I need a Coors Light? 
do I like the candidate on that bumper sticker? Did that person just cut me off? Some images turn into sticky thoughts, while others are just discarded. And some that we think are discarded come back later, which is what the Coors Light Company and the personal injured attorneys are, are counting on. They are counting on us remembering these things. They're planting seeds for when the time is right, when it's ripe, when thirst arrives or that car accident happens. Planting thought seeds is the entire point of advertising so that when desire or need is perceived, you load up that image from storage for reprocessing. What's interesting about all this is that you don't create these images. They are created in you by external inputs. The thought of a lawyer or a beer is just like any other thought. And just like advertisers and salespeople's ideologies and religions use the same power of suggestion to attract believers by telling and selling messages through stories that mostly come through the ears and eyes. Jesus even speaks of a mustard seed as a metaphor for planting faith in minds, which is quite a different thought than planting seeds to sell beer or sue someone in court. Because the mustard seed grows into something glorious. Something is given away. It gives itself away. Um, the beer, on the other hand, will get you drunk, and the lawyer may get you some money, maybe rich. Faith, on the other hand, will likely make you sober, and it certainly won't make you rich. Yet it somehow appeals to billions of us based on a message that I abhor called the prosperity gospel, which promises wealth and riches and health and all these things, and none of it came from Jesus. I'm talking about, talking about Joel Osteen here and his, his buddies. So this concept of where your thoughts come from is fundamental to understanding how your personal set of beliefs came into formation. And I say personal set of beliefs in quotes because they probably didn't actually come from you. It didn't come from yourself, but from various influences like teachers, parents, writers, coaches, actors, celebrities, pastors, preachers, siblings, friends, salespeople, admirers, heroes, advertisers, people in lab coats, on TV, talking heads, all that stuff. Then there is the greatest source of modern thought planting. That would be not the humans, but the shows, the books, the billboards, the ads, the commercials, songs. Songs are really good at doing this. Podcasts, news, blogs, videos, and video games. All the things that come through screens present thoughts to you and at a far more rapid rate than, say, looking at a tree. Although a tree will provide much deeper and more meaningful thoughts, just so you know. If you turn your screens off and go stare at a tree, you'll probably have a lot more uh, interesting thoughts for the day. Examining even a single blade of grass may take you to a far broader and deeper thoughts than anything on your phone because, well, for one thing, the grass is simple, it's true, and it's real. That's the thing with the screens is none of it's real, but we just don't really want to admit that. The thoughts that you hold are not as, quote, personal as you think, but it's rather a confluence of thoughts received from your experiences and from sounds poured into your ears and from images painted before your eyes and things you've touched, all the senses coming together. So these can be from natural sources in the world or from artificial sources on screens. Obviously, smell, touch, and taste factor in as much as uh, hearing and, and seeing, but all of these feed thoughts to our minds. We don't create the thoughts ourselves. 
what we think of as thoughts generated from within are actually received from outside. We filter and interpret them, but we don't generate thoughts ourselves. And this is where you can get to the high-minded places of the idea of platonic forms or meditation or transcendentalism or the Holy Spirit or bad spirits. Since this could be a rabbit hole that can never really be fully explored here, I'm going to steer away from it and focus on the idea that thoughts are either received or generated. And I am of the belief that they are received. Although our conscious somehow knows right and wrong, we do begin life as a mostly blank slate, like an empty apartment, where outside influences move a lot of furniture and knickknacks into the space between our ears. Think of your head as this apartment. Eventually, every few years or so, we have to clean house because it starts looking like an episode of Hoarders. Confusion reigns when conflicting doctrines and thoughts coexist to the point of it being a fire hazard for yourself. Now, when you reach this point, you have to throw out certain junk thoughts, and what you decide is junk are the thoughts that you were indoctrinated to dislike, or your experience has somehow finally made you realize that uh, buying that thing off TV late at night was not something you actually needed. They are the thoughts that go against what you were successfully indoctrinated into accepting. However, there are times along the path of life where you will look at the furniture you kept in the apartment and realize you kept the wrong things. And that is when a potential flip of the accepted doctrine of your indoctrination can happen. When you look around and see all the things you kept were really not what you should have kept, you may be hitting one of these points where you can pivot and change. This is one of the key elements that separates the various doctrines. And I use the word doctrine because to be indoctrinated, there must be specific doctrines that are taught to you. For some doctrines, you must accept that thoughts are generated from within and that there are no such things as spirits. To believe these doctrines, you have to deny all things spiritual. This is a requirement. But moving all of the spiritual furniture out of the apartment is very difficult to do, if not impossible. So the doctrines that require spiritual denial must go to great efforts in order to stifle it. Some of this furniture is permanent, or it can't fit through the doorway. It has to stay in the apartment. It's like a giant piano that someone got in there before you were born. And it can only be removed if the, if the apartment is destroyed. If your mind is destroyed completely, if, in other words, if you die. So because of this, indoctrination processes require covering up this spiritual furniture, this giant piano, by burying it under piles of dirty laundry or using stacks of books, something to make it less obvious. So if we deny the spiritual, we can't really get it out of our head altogether. It's still there. That giant piano, it can't go through your, it can't go out your ear. It's staying, but you can, you can kind of hide it. Now, my post high school set of beliefs aligned incredibly well to the tenets of something called the Humanist Manifesto. So the Humanist Manifesto was something written uh, in the 20th century by many people who were involved in education strategy, how to do public edu education. And most notably, one of them was John Dewey, the philosopher who spent a lifetime writing about how to do a takedown of religion through the education system and replace it with secular humanism. So this is really interesting. If you, ever, if you click on the link and read the Humanist Manifesto, 
and read how does your set of beliefs sit with that. And if you're a product of public school, it's a pretty good chance you're on board with 90% of those things. So John Dewey, uh, for this is from the book Atheism for Dummies. Uh, in the course of a long career, Dewey practically reinvented the American system of education from the bottom up. So the book Atheism for Dummies is telling you what about famous atheists, uh, famous uh, what is atheism? What is it? And one of the one of the uh, heroes of the book, I guess you could say, is John Dewey, who built American education system and also signed and helped craft the Humanist Manifesto. So to understand that I was indeed indoctrinated was a difficult thing to realize or even admit. That's then that's the idea of indoctrination. That's the entire idea of indoctrination. The intention is to perform a total eclipse of the mind and heart so that you don't realize that it's happening or happened. While I was under the impression that I grew up with faith, I was actively being conditioned to recoil at all things religious and see God as something oppressive that I needed to shake off, like John Dewey. Thanks, John. The soul itself was excused from my worldview because it wasn't talked about. It wasn't talked about in any seriousness. It was just some sideshow on the weekend for an hour. Since ghosts were not real, nor talked about, nor acknowledged, nor taken by anyone seriously, then neither was the soul. If, if, there's, no, if there's no ghost, there's no soul, obviously. I mean, you can't have one and not the other. Um, you, you start to get into some funny stuff the minute you admit, well, maybe there's one ghost in the world, but surely we don't have souls. If you admit one ghost, you're on your way to souls. So this conclusion was arrived at by design. The system was guiding me to this end, even though we don't really realize it at the time. That's very strong indoctrinization because you don't know it's happening. However, it's not hidden from us. Although if the voting public actually knew about it, they would have objected and never voted for such a scheme in the first place. Those who fought against it at first were mocked and set aside as crackpots. But the plan was exactly to kill off God from public and private life as far back as the 1930s. And this was openly mentioned as part of the plan. This is what, the more you start reading into it, is like, how did this happen? Oh, here's how it happened. Charles Francis Potter, one of the humanists, said, Education is the most powerful ally of humanism, and every public school is a school of humanism. What can the theistic Sunday schools, meeting for an hour once a week and teaching only a fraction of the children, do to stem the tide of a five-day program of humanistic teaching? That's a priceless quote. It's from 1930. That's how far back it goes. And the book was from Humanism, A New Religion. <laughs> this is a powerful statement because this man, like John Dewey, Charles Francis Potter, is saying, we need to use education to teach humanism, and this will dominate the religious courses, these little side things people get on Sundays. This is like, it's a perfect example of what happened once you realize you're sitting in this bathwater of humanism that's gone really stale, and you don't know how you got in the tub in the first place. It's because you were, you were put in the tub. Um, they said they're trying to, they're trying to uh, get rid of the theistic Sunday schools who have their one hour a week but we got a five-day program of humanistic teaching. That is a, a religion. Um, it is a religion. And I think for anyone who doesn't see it as one, 
Um, you should read the Humanist Manifesto because they actually have it marked out very much like a religion with something almost exactly like the Ten Commandments. So, um, so what I'm real, what I'm realized, uh, and what anyone who's who starts to wake up to this realizes that the deck was stacked. And the funny thing is that many of us who are indoctrinated into humanism now point back at religion at that one hour a week we spent learning about Jesus as our as that being our indoctrination. In other words, this is very well done indoctrination because we blame the thing that didn't successfully indoctrinate us as the thing that indoctrinated us. It's so rich in irony that I can I can hardly stand it when I think about it. Um, it's so well liberating to realize once you do, uh, because then it explains a lot. But until you see it clearly, you can't get out from under it. The bait and switch is performed on children and parents in an in an underhanded, I would say, flat out evil way, and so that they blame the lamb as the lion. That this is also why so many fallen away Catholics have absolutely no idea what Catholicism even is, let alone teaches. Cradle Catholics have always been considered clueless by converts to the faith, and I was living proof of this. The greatest bait and switch is how we came to blame the church and or parents for indoctrinating us when most fallen away Catholics had no concept of anything the church stood for or against, but we were very quick to name our Catholic guilt, in quotes, as the cause of our depression and self-hatred, even though it was manufactured. In fact, anyone that uses the phrase, quote, Catholic guilt is guilty of never taking time to read the catechism to realize that this is a concept that never had existed for 2,000 years, but is rather the idea of a campaign to shutter up the doors of the church once and for all as the enemy of the state. That may sound exaggerating. That's not what the words of the humanists, uh, they, they speak it themselves. That is the goal. So I challenge anyone to read the catechism and find the idea of Catholic guilt as the way you're supposed to be. The label of Catholic guilt is a lazy way to anoint yourself as a victim. And it is a direct outcome of brainwashing by the media and, I'm sorry, public school system. It's not from the church. It never was. Today, as always, the biggest threat to worldly power is Jesus Christ, as it was then, is now, and ever shall be, world without end, until he comes again. That's why they're trying to stifle it. Call it something it's not. Teach us that it's bad. We're trying to indoctrinate us away from it. So now, when I hear someone mention how they hate organized religion, I nod along because I was once programmed that way in that same headspace of this humanist indoctrination. The fact that I had any knowledge of the Bible is actually quite amazing, given that I was growing up in a Christian and name only nation and taking part in the humanist public school curriculum of the 1980s and the 1990s, which was full-blown by then. There wasn't even hiding it. Uh, the reality is that aside from my occasional experience of witnessing a devout person in active prayer at church, I had never lived a single day in a truly fully Christian culture, which I thought I had, and nor had most Americans, as we have been nudged along a path toward atheism, humanism, uh, anything that turns us away from even the word God. But there's something interesting about the word God and how it was kept by people like John Dewey 
in the in the in the schools even they knew that there was something they had to keep it to water it down to just slowly kill it off um so we're nudged along this path through sports through news through pursuit of money the self the endless self-worship and self-needs and uh, the things we're taught, uh, our uniqueness and our specialness and all these things about ourselves, rather than being a child of God, love, a hopeful sinner, those kind of things. Um, but the thing is, while this was all happening, we were keeping God on our lips with no understanding of the word, and really, we were fully turned away from it. We were just saying it. We were just saying the word God because it seemed like a good idea. So... We were craftily spun around, like blindfolded and turned around to face away from God. But we were taught to keep saying the word God. Now this explains the intense confusion in people today. We are trying to reconcile two worldviews that cannot be reconciled, ever. This is like fire and water trying to repeatedly burn and douse the same material over and over. We are the material in the middle here, the fire and water hitting us from both sides. Uh, we're just a wet, charred mess right now. Now, you either have to pick one or the other because to try and balance both is insanity. And what we do then to maintain sanity is to choose whatever suits our wants and desires at the time and only turn to God when he will seem to satisfy our needs for that moment. And even then, even then we pray for our will to be done, not God's will to be done. We're still so entrenched in this indoctrination that even when we go to prayer, it's not to give something to God, it's to get something for ourselves. And we'll talk a little bit about, more about that in part three.